You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we've not met before, my name is Matt Malloyan. I have the privilege of serving as, with John as one of the pastors here of Liberty Church. Joy to have you with us uh, for whatever reason you find yourself here today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges, continuing on in that series this morning. We've reached Judges 6 and 7. Uh, we won't read the entirety of those, but we'll read some selections from Judges 6 and 7. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that John mentioned, page 205 uh, is where you can find at least the beginning uh, of today's text. Uh, today, uh, we're actually going to take two weeks in this series of Judges. Uh, some Judges were flying through. We do like three in one week. And then for Gideon, who we've reached today, we're going to take two weeks. There's so much about Gideon, we're going to take two weeks to look at his life. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to look in chapter 6 and 7 at the more familiar part of his life. If you've, if you've grown up uh, in the church, if you've attended Sunday school, something like that, you've probably heard the name Gideon before. Today is going to be the more familiar part of his life. Um, how God raises him up to be a deliverer for his people, uh, how God uses him to work this mighty salvation uh, from the armies of, of Midian. Next week, we'll come back in chapter 8, and we will see how Gideon actually kicks off the next downward spiral cycle of rebellion. It's actually his own fault and his own family that begins the next, the next cycle. So a fairy tale, this is not. Uh, he is not... Um, there's a lot about his life that's not worthy of emulation as much as there's some things that are worthy of emulation. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Judges chapter 6. We'll begin in verse, verse 1. You can follow along either on your Bible or on the screen behind me. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Skip down to verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. 
down to verse 25 of chapter 6. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you, that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Skip down to verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount, from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Skip down to verse 19 of chapter 7. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, they split the 300 into three groups of a hundred. The hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands, their left hand, the torches and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as, as, far as Beth Shittah toward Zerariah, Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth-barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, 
And they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your word helps us to grow into the fullness of salvation you have so freely offered us in Christ. Grant now that our hearts may hear and grasp your word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and to your honor. We pray that through the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As a leader uh, among God's people, Gideon's story is really a a microcosm of theirs, and really of of ours as well, of our story as well. And I'll summarize it, at least the first part that we're covering today, the first part of the story like this. Weak cowards made strong in faith by the unrelenting grace of God. Weak cowards made strong in faith by the unrelenting grace of God. So we'll spend the rest of our time today really breaking down those those three things. Weak cowards being made strong in faith by the unrelenting grace of God. So first, weak cowards. Weak cowards. In the book of Judges, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. God's people, the same people who were delivered from Egypt, preserved in the wilderness, brought into so much of the promised land, find themselves over and again afraid and over and again accepting their defeat. We saw a couple weeks ago they were paying tribute to Moab, which is the ultimate sign of accepting your defeat. Here they're hiding in mountains and caves. And in Judges chapter 6, it's now the Midianites who are oppressing Israel. This time, uh, not by occupying or conquering their land, but by devouring it. They're making raids to plunder the crops, to plunder the animals, leaving nothing behind for the people of Israel to survive on. So there would have been, in this period, a lot of death by starvation. Livelihoods, not to mention dignity, decimated. The people, as we read, are brought very low. Why? Why? Uh, Because they have, again, done evil in the sight of God. And we come to find out over the course of this text that they are mixing worship of the one true God with the worship of Baal and Asherah, these these false gods, these idols of the Canaanites. So it's not that they have completely abandoned God or the worship of God. In fact, in his interaction with the angel of the Lord, Gideon recounts, he recalls how he has been taught from his own father the wonderful deeds of the Lord. But his same father who taught him that, is also apparently the keeper of the altar of Baal and the keeper of the Asherah pole that Gideon eventually pulls down. It's this odd, syncretistic mixture. It's not the outright rejection of God, but this mixture which is called in this text evil and disobedient. And that's a really important reminder for us. It's really needed clarity for us because in our day, one of the most offensive aspects about the Christian faith is, that, is our insistence on the exclusive worship of the Trinity. If you're a Christian and 
A Buddhist, for example. I don't even know exactly how that works, but that's kind of a, a, a rising trend that exists in our culture. If you're a Christian and a Buddhist, or if you're a, an interfaith uh, inclusive Christian who believes really that all of us are just traveling different roads up the same mountain and in the end it doesn't really make that much of a difference, that's actually pretty acceptable in our culture. That's, that's okay. But in reality, and we read it here in Judges and throughout Scripture, unfaithfulness, evil and disobedience even as it's called here, is not only a matter of the outright rejection of God, but by taking on a God plus, a Jesus plus approach to what we're devoting our lives to. Now we read here in this account this repeating cycle of judges playing out yet again. So you have Israel's rebellion, you have God's retribution through Midian, and then verse 6 of chapter 6, repentance. The people of Israel cry out for help to the Lord. Except, and maybe you heard this, where's the actual repentance? There's no repentance. The people cry out for help, but there's no acknowledgement of their sin. There's no turning away from it. There's no recommitment to trust in in God alone and follow him. All there is here is desperation for God to intervene. Centuries later, in his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul differentiates between what he calls worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. It's when we recognize the horror of our sin, the offense it is against a holy and good God, the offense it is against people created in his image, the offense it is against the good world that he made. And it truly breaks our hearts when we wake up to to that realization. Worldly sorrow isn't repentance at all. It's really just being saddened or overwhelmed by the consequences It's wishing that the effects and the circumstances that we're in right now would just go away. And yet, though there is no repentance in this cycle, God begins his rescue. God begins his rescue first by sending an unnamed prophet. We didn't get to read that part of the story, but I encourage you to go back and read it. And then by raising up this man named Gideon. Now, when we meet him, Gideon is a weak coward. A weak coward. He's the least in his family. That probably mean economically, socially, maybe uh, wealth-wise as well. Maybe strength-wise. We don't really know a whole lot about him in that sense. Uh, that his family is part of the weakest clan of his tribe of Manasseh. And when we meet him, where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding in a wine press. Normally, you would beat the wheat in an open field. You would throw the wheat up into the air and you'd let the wind separate the much lighter chaff from the the grain itself. But since Midian loves to raid the land, loves to pick the land clean, Gideon is using the wine press, which is a a dugout pit that you would use for, for crushing grapes. And it makes sense. It makes sense that that's where he's doing this. It's what we all would do in this situation in order to preserve food for ourselves and food for our friends and food for our families. But it makes this greeting that he receives from the angel of the Lord incredibly ironic. Incredibly ironic. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Mighty men of valor don't hide like that. Mighty men of valor don't accept a defeated, subjugated position. Mighty men of valor aren't those who beat the wheat in a wine press. 
But the Lord says to him, verse 14, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And we're all reading that thinking, what might are we talking about here? Where has Gideon demonstrated any kind of might? Quick side note, the angel of the Lord is probably God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In this text, if you read it carefully, the angel of the Lord and the Lord are actually used interchangeably. So it's clearly a divine figure. This is not just a human messenger. Most likely, this is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus. But despite the, that encounter with God, with part of the Trinity, Gideon will keep asking in this text for more assurance. In these chapters, he's constantly requesting signs to confirm that God is really with him. That's the pattern, and maybe you picked up on it. He, he asks for assurance, he gets it, he does some act of courageous faith, and then immediately he's afraid again, and he asks for another sign of assurance. And as we read it, especially having now seen some examples of God's deliverance already in the book of Judges, and those of us who know this story and where it's headed and know the deliverance that God is going to bring, we can start to think, come on, Gideon. Like, come on. Like, you just met God. You met God. How could you so quickly forget and lose faith? And then we look in the mirror. And then we look in the mirror and we realize that's us. I mean, we do the very same thing. Who among us does not constantly want reassurance that we are doing what God wants, that God is with us? Who among us isn't at times a coward? The conversation, the hard conversation that you know you need to have but you keep putting off. The person that you know you need to stand up for but you aren't. The difficult and the fear-inducing circumstances, maybe even in, including and around this pandemic that we're in the midst of right now, that call for courageous action but leave us paralyzed and crippled instead. We like to picture ourselves as Gideon at the end of chapter 7. The truth is we're a lot more like Gideon at the beginning of chapter 6. And I was telling some friends recently, I, I don't know if I have the same faith that I had a decade ago. I don't know if my faith is as strong as it was a decade ago. A couple weeks ago, it was the nine-year anniversary, the nine-year marker since Shay and I moved to central Pennsylvania to, to plant this church. And prior to moving here, we'd spent a total of about six hours in central Pennsylvania. Uh, growing up, actually, as a kid, I did spend a day at Hershey Park, but the angel of the Lord did not appear to me on the super-duper looper and call me to go to central, so I don't really count that as, as part of the background. So if I were making the decision today, would I have the same faith? I don't know. I don't know. I hope so. Now, some of that is that I'm just, I'm less naive than I used to be. I know what it actually takes and costs to, to do that. That's part of it. I also have kids now, so I feel added responsibility to provide some more stability for, for a family. But uh, if that God-ordained path became clear today, I hope I would have the same faith that I did then. And I share all that to say this cowardice is not a one-time struggle for us. It's not something that we face once and then get over and then never have to deal with. Again, each new season of life, really in some ways, every new day will present you and me with fresh fears. The fear of not fitting in, maybe when you're younger. That might persist all the way through your life, but that might give way to the fear of 
not making it through your education, which might give way to the fear of not getting a job, which might give way to the fear of not providing for a family, and then maybe the fear of aging or the fear of not being able to retire, all the way through the fear of death itself. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Those words are filled with irony when the angel of the Lord speaks them to Gideon. But, but, they are also words of prophecy. They are precisely what Gideon will become. And so second, let's consider how weak cowards second are made strong in faith. The call of the people of God, we, we mention this fairly regularly here at the church, the call of the people of God is always become who you are. Become who you are. So rather than telling us to become something different, to make ourselves different and change ourselves, God, in God's kingdom, he first gives us a new identity and then he tells us to live in light of that new identity he's already given. And the call of Gideon, referring to him as a mighty man of valor, that's a moment like this. It's like when years later Jesus calls the 12 and he says to them in Mark chapter 1, I will make you become fishers of men. Or it's like when Jesus appears to Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and he says of the Apostle Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God transforms the cowardly into the courageous. He transforms those who hide from armies into those who lead armies. And incredibly, he declares our new identity over us, this yet-to-be-realized identity, before we do even one courageous thing. This is, in fact, God's own good design and plan. It is how he does everything he can to ensure that we won't give ourselves the credit. We won't credit ourselves, even an ounce of credit, to our own intelligence, our own strength, our own abilities. And this entire rescue of Israel from Midian is designed so that God alone will get the glory, will get the credit and the honor for it. It's set up so that Israel won't have any room to say, chapter 7, verse 2, my own hand has saved me. A scholar named Daryl Block puts it like this. He writes, God often deliberately selects ridiculous means to achieve his ends that we might learn that his kingdom is built, and he quotes Zechariah chapter 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And perhaps you, you picked up on, on it as we were reading a little while ago. Numbers, quantities, are an important part of God's ridiculous means in the story of Gideon. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east, they're uncountable. Hordes of people, they're like locusts that descend upon the land and consume it. Their army, we come to find out, is 135,000 men. How can anyone defeat an army that size? There are too many. And God agrees. This is too many. But he's not talking about the armies of Midian. He's talking about his own armies, the armies of Israel. Gideon has mustered an impressive force of 32,000. Even so, it's, it's still more than four to one in favor of Midian. But God says, actually, let everyone who's afraid go home. And 22,000 leave. Only 10,000 remain. And still God says, too many. It's now 13 to 1, a little worse than that. 13 to 1, still too many. And so God uses more ridiculous means to reduce the army further. A drinking test. It's a confusing passage. 
It's a confusing passage. Most scholars think that some damage was actually done to this text and the transmission of it over the years. But it seems here that some were kneeling and scooping the water to their mouths. Others were just putting their faces directly in the water and lapping it with their tongues like a dog. And in the end, the 300 who lapped water uh, become the force through which God will deliver his people. Now, here's where some completely miss the point of all of this. This is not God's version of BUDS, the Navy SEAL training school. This is not BUDS for the Israelite army. Right? This is not God weeding out all the weak people who can't do it and sticking with just the elite force, the best of the best. Over the years, some of us have suggested that, that the soldiers here who lapped water would have been the more alert, the, the better warriors, or, or something like that. But remember, this is the story of Gideon. This is not the movie 300. In the movie 300, right, this, these elite Spartan warriors go up against a, a massive army. It's a similar kind of story. But what is that movie 300? In that movie 300, who, who is that all about? Who gets all of the glory for that? The Spartans do. The 300 do. What is Gideon all about? Gideon is what, is what God will do through less, through weakness, so that he alone will get the glory. So I'm convinced this whole drinking test is really only a numbers thing. If there were 300 kneelers instead of 300 lappers, God would have just gone with the kneelers instead. On top of that, think about the actual defeat of the Midianite army. These 300 men who are left don't, at least in the initial route, kill a single person. They're not warriors, they're a brass ensemble. They're a, bra- they're a marching band with torches. What, do, what they do here requires absolutely no military might or strength or skill. They blow trumpets and they shout and they hold fire in the air. Now, not that that's not brilliant. When the trumpets blow and the torches become visible on the mountains all around this camp, the massive Midianite army is thrown into confusion. And the fact that it was done at the setting of the watch means that there would have been a group of soldiers coming off duty and walking back into the camp. And so when the sleeping soldiers hear this crazy noise and rush out of their tents, what would they see? They would see armed men walking back into the camp toward them. And in the middle of the night, Combined with the fact that this army, which was a mixture of Midianites and Amalekites and peoples from the east and almost certainly spoke different languages, you can start to get the picture of the chaos and the confusion that would have ensued and why, without having to do a single thing, 120,000 men of their army kill each other. And then as the remaining 15,000 soldiers flee, the men of Israel are called out in pursuit. They capture Oreb and Zeb and... Did you hear the bookend of the story? Did you hear the bookend? When we first meet Gideon, where is he hiding? In a wine press. Where is one of Midian's princes put to death? In a wine press. And the bookend of the wine presses shows us how a weak coward becomes a mighty man of valor. So, everyone, now go be like Gideon, stop being afraid. Stop being cowards. Go face your enemies. We'll see you next week. Except, except, if that is what we take away from the story of Gideon, we will have have missed what is actually here. Through and through, the story of Gideon is a story of grace. Grace. And so third and final, let's talk about the unrelenting grace of God. 
Now make no mistake about it, there is a hero in this story. It's just not Gideon. That will become even more evident, more obvious next week in chapter 8. The hero of Gideon's story is God. And his most ridiculous means, the most scandalous and the most shocking thing about this story is not that he defeats innumerable enemies, but about his innumerable, inexhaustible grace. First, as we saw, there's no real repentance from Israel. Just a cry for help. And God sends a prophet and God raises up a deliverer anyway. When does God move to rescue his people? Before we have done a thing to earn it. Before we have done a thing to earn it. Not even repentance. When, God, when does God demonstrate his love for us through the death of Jesus? Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is literally nothing in us that merits the rescue and salvation of God. And he offers it anyway. This is grace. When the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, he turns a meal into an offering. He turns a hospitality moment into a throne of God moment. Gideon thinks here he's providing some kind of gift, some kind of service to a messenger. But who is really serving who in this encounter? The Lord consumes the meal. It goes up in smoke. He receives it as an offering. And as cowardly and as doubtful as Gideon is in that moment, the Lord says to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. He has encountered the living God and lived, and his offering has been deemed acceptable. This is grace. In faith, then, Gideon pulls down Baal's altar and cuts down the Asherah, building in its place an altar to God. When the town finds out, they're about to kill him. And out of nowhere, no explanation for this, his father's heart just changes Joash goes from the owner of the town's idols and maybe even some kind of priest or religious leader for them to supporting his son's exclusive worship of the one true God. This is grace. God clothes Gideon with his own spirit. The man who hides in a wine press instantly becomes a man who can gather and rally thousands of people to follow his leadership. This is grace. Gideon goes on then to ask for more signs and God grants them. The whole episode with the fleece, right? First, make the fleece wet, Gideon says, and the ground dry. Done. Okay, Gideon says, one more, one more. Uh, now make the fleece dry and the ground wet. Done. Now, this is not, church, prescriptive for how we should seek to determine the will of God. The normative pattern for the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through the present day, the normative pattern is that we walk by faith and not by sight. However, at other points in Scripture, people will ask God for a sign and he will rebuke them for their lack of faith. He will rebuke them for putting him to the test. Here, with Gideon, there's no rebuke. God simply grants his request. Why is that? Why is that? Because weakness is not the same as obstinance. Weakness is not the same thing as obstinance. When, when we're obstinate, when we know what we're supposed to do and we're digging our heels in, or when we are putting God to the test and demanding a sign from him, when we are double-minded, attempting to say out of the same mouth, in the one hand, we worship God, and yes to an idol in the same moment, 
we should expect in those times the rebuke of God. We should expect something like the sermon that this unnamed prophet gives near the beginning of chapter 6 where he says to the people, God says via this prophet, I'm God, I've told you what to do, and you have not obeyed me. But, but when we're weak, when our eyes are on him, but we are consumed with fear and overwhelmed by our inadequacies and overwhelmed by our doubts, we can in those moments expect God to simply continue his patient pursuit of us. There's all the difference in the world between demanding a sign from God and and crying out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. God knows our frame. God remembers we are dust, as the psalmist says. He gives us the assurance and the reassurance that we need over and over again so that we might press on in faith. And all of this is grace. God then continues these signs for Gideon. He makes a Midianite soldier, an enemy combatant, dream about Gideon by name and then interpret the dream in Gideon's hearing. Why? Because, as it says, he was afraid again. He needed his hands strengthened again and God granted that strength again. This is grace. So obstinate people among us, obstinate people among us, stop putting God to the test. Stop digging your heels in. Stop trying to add your idols to the worship of the one true God. But weak people among us, fearful people among us, cowards among us, take heart. The grace of God is unrelenting and he will exalt himself again and again to show it to you. Like Gideon, like Gideon, we will find ourselves at times in our lives desperate for a sign, desperate for a fleece, longing for some kind of concrete evidence that God really is with us, that he really goes before us and comes behind us as our rear guard. And what I would say to you in those moments, friends, and let us be people who say it to one another, Jesus is the fleece. The cross of Jesus Christ is our ultimate fleece. You want to know that God is with you? You want to know that sin and death will be forever defeated and that all things will be made new? Lift your eyes to the cross. A pastor named Barry Webb writes that this is the gospel of Gideon. Quote, God has done something that makes all the difference in our situation. God has gone before us. He's won the battle even before we begin to fight. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet saw a day when God would shatter the rod, the strength of the oppressor. And he writes there that God would shatter the rod of the oppressor as on the day of Midian. And so Isaiah in that moment was looking backward and he was remembering God's great deliverance through Gideon. And he was simultaneously looking forward to when the oppressor would be stopped forever. How? The next verse in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. The rod, friends, of our oppressors, of Satan and sin and death, the rod of our oppressors has been shattered. God reigns. God wins. And so now, in union with the mighty man of valor, The deliverer, Jesus Christ, become who you are. Become who you are. May the unrelenting grace of God make weak cowards like you and me strong in faith 
and fiercely courageous proclaimers of the great salvation of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our God, you have given to us, and we see it all over the story of Gideon, the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. So grant that as we joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, we might gratefully share it with others. And like this battle, like this episode, ever give glory to you alone, by whose grace alone we are what we are. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.